beautiful thought that, that we are a child of God. Now, the fact we're children means we have wants. So I chose to call this sermon today, What About My Wants? Uh, what about my wants? And I, mentioned, I mentioned earlier this year that I've been med- sort of meditatively uh, reading through a book by Dallas Willard on Psalm 23. And almost all of you are familiar with this psalm. And it keeps coming back to me. And the first verse of Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. A life without lack. I'm sure this describes the life that we all desire. A life in which we lack absolutely nothing. A life we are meant to enjoy. One that is imminently available to us. But is it true? Is it true for you? Do you feel so fully satisfied that you could declare like the psalmist, I lack nothing? Or are those just nice words? Is it true that with the Lord as my shepherd, I lack nothing? Well, I can tell you, I lack so much. Come on, we got to be honest. We lack many things, don't we? I've read statistics that say in every single strata of our society... Okay, from the poorest to the richest, people believe that they would be happy if they just had a little bit more, just 20% more, and they'd be happy. So you could have $1,000, and if you just had a few dollars more, you would be happy. But it's kind of interesting that the person that has a million dollars, and the person that has $10 million, and the person that has a billion dollars, also believe they would just be happy if they just had a little bit more. So what's wrong with that formula? Uh, it's kind of funny how that works. <clears throat> now, it may not be about the money. Maybe we think we'd be satisfied if we just had a more fulfilling spouse. Or if we had children like our neighbor's children. How many homes have been destroyed because parents and children were dissatisfied with one another? How can the psalmist say that when we have the Lord as our shepherd, we lack nothing? That would mean that every single one of my lacks would be fulfilled. We're coached to become self-realized, self-fulfilled individuals. Why are we to become self-realized and self-fulfilled? Well, because others cannot be depended on to realize and to fulfill my needs and my wants. Isn't it God's intent for us to become fully a fully realized self. Uh, indeed, in, in Second Peter 1, verses 1 to 3, uh, 1, verses 3 and 4, rather, it's written, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who is called by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. To participate in the divine nature. Interesting phrase. God's infinite. He has so much depth. And it uses that phrase, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. We expect God's promises to work in our lives so that we might rise up into the very life of God. But we have a problem. We have a problem that keeps us from experiencing this, this great promise. 
It's called self. Okay? Or you might even call it desire. <clears throat> Colossians 3, verses 1 to 10. Uh, well, let's go to 1 Corinthians. Got my wrong order now. Well, I'll read, I'll read Colossians 3. <clears throat> Uh, Colossians 3, it says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Okay. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the, in the image of its creator. You'll notice uh, if you had your, your Bible open, you're going through it, or if you listen carefully, in this passage it uses language like, you died, put to death your earthly nature, take off your old self. Now, were you put down here on this earth to get rid of yourself? Because this is funny language. Okay? This is not language we use in this century when we talk about self-help. That's not what Paul is really saying here. You were put on the earth to be a self, okay? And to live fully as a self. In fact, the worth of yourself is beyond measure, okay? It is invaluable. And God's intent for you and me is that we do become fully realized selves Okay, as we make the movement from the old self to the new self. The self is important. Not self-realized, but a God-realized self. A God-realized self. But what about Jesus' teaching when he says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does that mean for someone to deny himself? Now, we have to be really careful how we understand these things because, because Satan is going to try and grab these things and to twist them, to confuse it, to distort it. Okay? Does denying yourself mean, not mean denying that you exist? No. Does it mean that you should think of yourself as worthless? No. That makes no sense. Or why would Jesus have died for us if we were worthless? So what does it mean to deny yourself? Well, let's look at two verses by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the essence of the death to self life, that we should no longer live for ourselves, but we should live for him who died for us and rose again. Who do we live for is the question. We are valuable, but who do we live for? So we're going to circle around and come back again to this. 
We could all slide to this, Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer, uh, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then in chapter 5, 24 and 25, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So we just got a new concept that came in. I'm going to tie into this now. It's called the flesh. I'm flesh. You're flesh. My flesh is alive and well. I'm up here. Pinch. I feel pain. You're flesh here this morning. So what's the problem with the flesh? What is flesh? What is the flesh that is to be crucified in particular? Yeah, I, I didn't go up on the cross in the flesh. The flesh is merely the natural powers of the human being based in the human body. Okay, It's our capabilities, it's our wants, it's our desires as they are in themselves without the help of any divine assistance or guidance. The flesh isn't quite the same thing as human nature, although it could be a part of it. Okay, One aspect of human nature, you might say, it isn't necessarily even sinful. The flesh is not even necessarily sinful. Human beings have natural abilities, and those abilities are good when they are used according to God's designs and his desires. So what is the problem with the flesh? Why must it be crucified with its passions and its desires? The problem is in its weakness and lostness when it is uncoupled from God's spirit. When the flesh is not attached or coupled to God's spirit, that is the problem. To live in the flesh, to live with uncrucified passions and desires is simply a matter of putting them in the ultimate position of our lives. If your passions and your desires are now your ultimate passion, your ultimate desire in your life, okay, if they're in that ultimate position, okay, that is what is being said we must crucify. Whatever I want becomes the most important things, uh, things, thing rather. This is what happens when we are living apart from God. We make our desires ultimate because they're all we have. They're all we have. If we're just going through this time and space and we don't have God. Self is all most people have. The flesh is all most people have, or so they think. We look to our desires and wants as if they were everything in our lives. This is the era we live in. Thinking of my worth, my glory, my appearance, my power to sustain myself. Self-dependence is very, very important to us. Now let's consider for a moment what is desire. Desire, it's essentially the impulse to possess or experience something. When we desire something. Desire always has an object. I desire something. There is an object at the end of desire. Desire cares about its object. In fact, you could say it cares for nothing else other than its object. That is what desire does. We desire something. You can put anything in there for something. Desire proclaims, I want what I want when I want it. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting or desiring. In fact, desire is a fine thing, and it's one of the things that keeps us alive. Okay? 
But desires are terrible masters. The objects of desire can differ. I may want to eat or sleep. Not so bad. Okay. I may want to dominate others. I may want great wealth. According to the Bible, desires are inherently chaotic and deceitful. In our natural state, apart from God, it's, it's, it's written, fleshly desires wage war against the soul. Second Peter. These desires wage war against our soul. While our unrestrained flesh has its singular focus on satisfying desire, the spirit now is different. The, the person's spirit is different. See, the spirit is able to consider alternatives, and God prompts us to have an interest in what is better and best, not just simply to follow desire. We are spiritual beings, and we have choice. Choice involves deliberation between alternatives with a view to what is best. Okay, So the conflict between the flesh and the human spirit is the conflict between desire, what I want, and the will for what is best. In other words, it is possible, even though you really desire something, to, in your mind, will not to do a particular thing. You can choose not to dominate somebody else. Our will has, has that choice, but desire continues to be enslaved to what it desires. Okay? But we can override desire with, with our will. In fact, you could say that it is a conflict between desire and love. For love always is directed toward the good of its object. And not simply at having its desires fulfilled or satisfied. Love is the will to good of its object. Our society has twisted the meaning of love to the place where it's almost the same thing as desire. You can see people that they get confused even between, between lust and love. And there's many gradients in between. But to find pure love where you truly love someone else for the good of someone else. That's where the will is. So when you love someone, you will do them good. When you desire someone, you will use them for yourself. Let's compare love and fleshly desires in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Jesus teaches about anger and lust. The desire embedded in both anger and lust is not at all concerned with the good of the object, but only with its own satisfaction. All right? In the case of anger, it's the desire, okay, uh, it's, it's the desire to have the object suffer in some way, okay? When we're angry at someone, we want, and in fact, it's a bit like, like uh, Phil was talking with the kids here, you don't forgive someone because you're trying to hurt them, right? When we're angry at someone, somebody has to pay a certain price. We desire to have the object suffer in some way. In the case of sexual lust, it's a desire that is, that the that what is the desire? That the object provides sensual pleasure. Again, in both cases, we're trying to meet our own needs through our desire. Desire says, let's have sex. Love says, a greater good is at issue here. The purity of human love and faithfulness toward other human beings is at play here. In both anger and lust, Love is absent, and the flesh is enthroned. Desire is such a force. It's almost omnipresent, okay? And love is absent when it's there. Let's look at self-willpower for a moment. 
we might also think of the flesh in terms of our confidence in our own power, uh, what we might call willpower. Okay? The basic nature of sin is to trust only oneself. When you turn from God, your will becomes blind and helpless before that pounding of desire. Even when we don't have much self-confidence, we put our trust in our own powers because we think that is all we have. Even when we don't have self-confidence, we pull inside and try to do it ourselves, right? Who will take care of you if you don't? In fact, we have sayings that say, God takes care of those who take care of themselves. Really? Really? What do we need God for? So when our abilities are the only things we know to trust, and when we are living with them as our ultimates, we are living in the flesh. God's not in the picture. We are living in dependence upon the God-given drives of human personalities rather than in the God who gave us those drives. That's life in the flesh. Paul talks about this repeatedly. Essentially, Paul is saying, as long as our desires are paramount in our lives, we cannot have faith in God. Whoops, what was that? Is it possible that when our desires are paramount in our lives, we cannot have faith in God? What is faith? Faith is a gift of God. If faith is a gift of God, and God gives me faith, while I am still treating what I want as my ultimate concern, what will I do? I'm going to use faith to get what I want. We are so fast as human beings to take things that come our way, to use it, okay, to meet our own desires. I will abuse faith. That would be my ultimate, my, if my ultimate point of reference is myself, okay, and God would give me a gift of faith, I'm going to take that faith and I'm going to use it for myself. I would not be thinking about the good of others or the glory of God. I would be thinking simply of getting what I want. If my desire is to have people recognize me, okay, recognize the good that I do or to think well of me, or, and, and I am destroyed if they don't think well of me, then I would use my gift of faith to glorify myself. It's absurd. If I have faith and I want to dominate others, I would use that faith to do just that. We would be very abusive people. Okay? And is there anything worse than someone who justifies evil or abuse by appealing to their faith in God? Now we just had another case in the news this past week. That is why God does not give us significantly more faith until we have come to terms with death to self. Okay? We couldn't handle it. We'd abuse it. Just like we abuse all power as people. What do they say? Power, power corrupts. Absolute power absolutely corrupts. It's a dangerous tool in our hands, especially when desire is, when our self-desires are paramount in our lives. An individual can only have a very small amount of faith until he has come to a very clear understanding and resolution of the place of his desires, the place of his glory, or his own power to dominate. Until these are settled, okay, he's not going to have much faith. God isn't going to give much faith to such a person. In John 5, 39 to 44, Jesus is addressing some very religious people who think they are working very hard at denying their own desires for God. In fact, if you look at the rules that the Pharisees lived under for the sake of God, it is incredible the amount of self-denial 
that they were going through in their personal lives. Okay, they set aside phenomenal amount of things and resisted phenomenal amount of things. Okay, in their pursuit of God. But what does Jesus say? You search the scriptures because you think in them. You have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, that you, and you did not receive me. If another comes in, my, in his own name, you will receive him. Verse 44, now how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Now, Jesus is talking to some very proper people here. These are the really good people of their society, so to speak. Okay, these are the religious leaders of the day that really do work hard at their being good. They had the faith of propriety in abundance. These proper folks claim to know God and to be able to do the works of God, and Jesus disagreed. He disagreed. Jesus was describing a very common practice of his day, and actually, it's a very common practice of our day. The Pharisees welcome people who came with their own attainment saying, look what I've done. Okay? What's if, you know, they, they, they came hoping to be, to be received on the basis of these accomplishments. I have my PhD and whatever. Look at me. I have something good to bring you. What is the effect on our faith of this concern for self-attainment and recognition? So look at verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Now, there are a number of us right now that, that take, turn pre, take turns preaching on Sundays. Okay? We're normal people, and we're sensitive to what others think about what, uh, how we've done. I'm sensitive this morning to how I'm doing in, in preaching a sermon. I'm a person. And that's okay, so long as we aren't seeking the glory from others, but seek the glory that comes from the only God. Now that's true for any ministry in this church, not just for us, those of us that are up here. This is just the visible, maybe the most visible thing, uh, together with worship leaders. Do you get frustrated that the church doesn't recognize all that you have done? Oh, the Pharisees got very frustrated when they weren't recognized for the work that they had done. Okay? We need to examine ourselves and ask why we do things. Are we doing it for ourselves, for our desire for recognition, or are we doing it for God? How many people stop doing ministry? Okay, and, and they stop doing ministry because they're discouraged, yes, but they're discouraged because they didn't get the recognition that they so desperately craved. I understand that. We'll come back to that. What desire was uttermost, um, uttermost in these Pharisees' lives? What was the uttermost desire they had? It was the glory and honor from others in their group. Their desire for such honor was keeping them from believing the truth. You cannot hold the esteem for, of others rather to that, that degree of importance in your life and at the same time believe that God is who he is. It's not possible. As long as people are hung up on honor from other people, reputation, appearing well, whatever it is, they cannot truly believe and deeply believe and trust God. They're trusting in the, in, in the praise that comes from others, not the praise that can come from God. We must come to terms with death to self, or we simply cannot enter into a life without lack. Now, the problem with human desire is that it's infinite. <laughs> it's infinite by its nature. 
it cannot be satisfied. Uh, you can never get enough money if you want money. Lots of you don't want money. You're going, oh, that's good. I'm free from that one. Huh. No, you can never get enough power if you want power. You can never get enough love. You can never get enough of anything when desire is let loose on its own. It's impossible. So fundamental is this truth that every person who desires to follow Christ must understand it. Jesus spoke directly to this point when he said, unless you lose your life for my sake, you cannot follow me. Unless you take up the cross, you cannot follow me. When we accept the cross, we're accepting a limitation on desire. Okay? If you cannot accept the limitation on your desire, you'll only be frustrated and worse, for you simply cannot satisfy desire. Solomon said it in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 8, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. We'll never be satisfied. Satan takes this truth and then he twists it to entrap people. It is true of sexual desire. It starts with little things, but it just keeps consuming, consuming, and it leads to all kinds of perversion. Okay, The object of desire might be comfort, and it can lead to all kinds of perversion as well. Possessions, talent, money, or reputation. Reputation in a profession. Watch people in professional sports or in the entertainment industry, and you'll see great demonstrations and displays of vanity. It's true in the in literary fields. It's true in the arts. All right. Vanity can never be satisfied. It's like an itch. You keep scratching. It just keeps itching. You got to go more and more and more. Capitalism thrives on insatiable desire, always driving for more. Capitalism would fail if it didn't have greed. But unfortunately, socialism fails over and over for the same reason. People cannot set aside their own desires for the needs of others. So we don't get this problem fixed in any system. There's no human system that will fix this problem. It isn't a system problem. It's a heart problem. So for you to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Okay? For, you to, for you and me to live a life of abundance, we must be focused on standing against the roots of the self-life. It's an interesting thing. God made us with desires, infinite desires. In fact, desire is infinite partly because we were made for God. We were made by God first. We were made for God and we were made to run on God. Okay? So we are given this infinite desire. We can only be satisfied, therefore, by the one who is infinite. The one who is eternal. The one who is able to supply all our needs. The one who is sovereign and good. We're only at home in God. It is, it is good that our desire is infinite because we need an infinite God. Nothing else will work to solve this problem. But when God is removed, the desire for the infinite remains. Pull God out, and the desire remains. And it is displaced by things that certainly lead so often to destruction. As we pursue self-gratification and self-satisfaction, life becomes just as Paul described in Galatians 5, 19-21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, 
Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and likes of these, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is the consequence of living for our own desires. Now, if we go to James, James compares two kinds of wisdom in comparing the flesh and the spirit in James chapter 3. But if you have bitter jealousy and self... I hit the wrong button. There we go. James uh, 3, verse 14 through 18. But you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So compare the wisdom from above to our earthly wisdom. Pure, or purity. Purity is definitely missing from the wisdom of this world. That is not something that we see promoted very much, is it? It's always discouraging to find out that someone you have admired and respected in your chosen profession or, or some hobby or there's just some personality that we looked at and admired and then all of a sudden we find out that they are as impure as anyone you can imagine. Oh, there were so many people that loved Tiger Woods and then all of a sudden they found out what he'd been up to in those Vegas hotel rooms with, with the call girls and the, so many people were crushed. University professors are no different. People see no connection between their, their supposed moral sophistication or advantage in life and the depravity of their actual lives. The attitude of most people is that there is nothing wrong with lusting after others and having their desires satisfied. It's fun. Impurity abounds, not just in sexuality, but in other areas as well. If we have needs, if we have desires, we're going to find ways to fill them. Peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. What a list. These beautiful qualities are marks of persons who have learned in the heart of hearts the great freedom of death to self. The freedom of death to self. And out of their peaceful lives comes everything that is right and good. Such people no longer promote themselves. They no longer exalt in their own wants, Okay, and their way is the condition of getting along with them. They're not trying to dominate others. They are, they are ready to simply stand for the truth, to speak for what they see to be right, to see to be right rather in a peaceable way, pure, gentle way, and they let it rest at that. And as a result of that, God gives them a life of beauty and power that is obvious to others. It's ironic that we gain everything when we let go of our desire to gain everything. When we hang on to it, we lose it. We have to let go and give it up to gain it. Lust, envy, domination, and self-seeking are so pervasive that purity shocks people. 
I run a business with about 70 employees. One of the things that, that I'm actually proudest of is that I've been able to give employment to 70 people over the last 20 years and to help families. And, and if and I, one time I was talking about it in, in a small management meeting, and I said that if I, that my business was to go bankrupt today, I would be so pleased that I had given that opportunity to all those people and to their families for over a 20-year period. And I shared it, and, and one of my vice presidents laughed out loud. He said he didn't believe it. He said there's only one reason to own a business and hire employees. It's for my own financial profit. Good motives shock people. Purity even more. We all know people who readily give up what they want, but they make sure you recognize them for doing so. Or they may be using it as a technique of domination, in effect saying, look, I've given all this up, so now you should do what I want you to do. Ooh, how many parents haven't said that, right? How many of us have done that in our marriages? All of us have done that. All of us have done that. I have done this. You need to do that now. So what are the rules for dying to the flesh? Ralph, give me something to do. This is a bit of obscure sort of thing for us. Now, if we try to create rules, we'll likely miss the core problem. The Pharisees created rules, and uh, it just created more problems, right? The core problem is not our behavior. The core problem is what is in our hearts. There are so many motivations. For example, many people maintain a posture of defiance. Perhaps they've been hurt in some way. So now they are going to have their own way no matter what because no one's going to hurt them again. Oh, we can put those walls up to make sure nobody hurts us, right? They may be Christians, but that doesn't mean they're going to be doormats for Jesus. Others are lost in the desires themselves. They enjoy the glory or the domination or whatever else it is that they want. Desires are terrible masters. It's addictive. Putting things in the place of God is the central issue. Our desire should be for God. It's a heart issue. So what is the application then for us today? Well, first, I think it is to recognize that our desire has not been for God first. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Has our desire and our love been there? We need to recognize that we have fallen, we have failed. And then second, when we recognize that, we need to repent. We need to change our direction. If you live for yourself, it's hard to have faith in God. It's hard to love God. If we need to repent, so we need to repent of our failure. We need to throw ourselves at the mercy of God. And God will give if we set our desire on him. We can make a choice to resist our selfish desires and make God number one. We can. Then that leads me to a third point. And here I could go on and I could give you 20 different ideas. The spiritual disciplines. The one that's just what I chose to put down was meditate and memorize. So what do I mean? Open your Bible and start meditating on truth. For me, I've spent a few months on Psalm 23. I took the time to memorize it. Um, I'm reading through the Old Testament at the same time, but I'm meditating on this one. 
because I'm really trying to grasp just verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, or I lack nothing. Okay? I lack nothing. Okay? I've memorized it. I'm meditating on it. Just that first verse has a lifetime of learning in it. The Lord is my shepherd. What is there in that formula that the Lord is so sufficient? Do I fully grasp all that he is that I can say I lack nothing? Through this process, I'm learning in new areas what it means to be satisfied with my life in God. You cannot take those three words, I lack nothing, and separate them from the first half of the sentence, the Lord is my shepherd. You take the Lord is my shepherd off of there, you cannot say I lack nothing. We lack so much because our desires are infinite. That infinite desire can only be satisfied with the Lord as our shepherd. It is the infinite God that fills my infinite desire and keeps it from being corrupted and evil and selfish. Find those scriptures that speak about how great a God and Savior we have, how adequate he is, how good he is, how powerful he is in his goodness. Meditate on him. Memorize those key passages. Let it soak right in. Okay? Make God your desire, and he will satisfy you. Amen.